On today's podcast, we'll be joined by marine scientist, shark expert, and star of Discovery's Shark Week special, Mission Shark Dome, Christine De Silva. She's here to talk about how technology is helping us learn more about sharks every day. Plus, she'll be telling us all about her cutting-edge research in deep-sea exploration. All that and more is coming up on this episode of Shark Week, the podcast. I'm Luke Tipple, marine biologist and a frequent voice on my favourite things, oceans and sharks. And I'm stoked to bring the magic of Shark Week right to your ears. You know, sharks have been a big part of my life for over 20 years. They're a critical part of the ocean and a conduit to a better understanding life on our planet. So whether you've never seen Shark Week before, or you've been a diehard fan over the 30 plus years it's been around, this podcast is for you. So on this episode, I'm stoked to welcome a very special guest. We have marine scientist and star of Discovery's Shark Week special mission, Shark Dome. This is Christine De Silva. How are you doing, Christine? Hey, Luke. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Uh, you are coming f- to us from officially the coolest shark room I've seen so far on this <laughs> podcast. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, this is the, the shark room at my house. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, so tell me, what got you interested in sharks? You know, I I was super, super lucky to spend my summers out here on Cape Cod, where I actually am right now. And I was, of course, always interested in the ocean, always sailing, windsurfing, you know, spending my time out in the water as much as possible. And I just kind of fell in love with the ocean and fell in love with wanting to protect it. And that led me to sharks. And then I went to University of Miami, where I was in the shark lab down there with Neil Hammerschlag. And just absolutely fell in love with working with sharks, working with predators. And it's been the best decision I've made in my life. That's uh, it's interesting. That's a fairly similar story to me because I was mostly into the ocean. And it was like, oh, how can I know more about the ocean than it was right. about, you know, the coolest animals, you know, and the <laughs> sharks just stood out to me as something to understand. And then as you understand that, you get to understand everything else underneath it, you know, to some degree, which I thought was a pretty cool entry point. Uh, and you were at University of Miami. I did. That's where I did my undergrad. Um, right now, though, I'm doing grad school at University of Rhode Island. So I'm getting a blue MBA. And what that means is I'm getting an oceanography master's and an MBA at the same time. So it's a so lot. So you are like <laughs> super smart echelon marine scientist status, no. right? No, I think a lot of people say that. I think when people go to grad school, but my response is typically, if you find something that you're passionate enough about and interested in enough, it doesn't matter your intelligence level. You're just going to go for it. And if you're really interested in it, it doesn't really matter. You'll you'll do the work. I love that. Yeah, you'll figure it out along the way. So what got you <laughs> interested in, your specialty is uh, somewhat in sort of deep sea sharks, right? Just sort of deep stuff. What got you into that? You know, it's really funny. I was not really focusing on deep sea sharks until in 2020, I started working with Shark Week. So it all for me kind of goes back to Shark Week. Um, in just before COVID in January of 2020, I got to be a part of uh, Tiger Shark King and we were looking at deep sea tiger sharks and we were using these really cool cameras, these brubs called baited remote underwater video systems, brubs. And that got me really interested in the technology. How can we make these better? How can we go deeper? How can we see more sharks? How can we attract more animals so we can study them? And from there, you know, my passion, thanks to Shark Week, <laughs> got to be something that I get to do now as a job and something I get to study. 
So are deep water sharks now part of your study or part of your thesis or how do you how do you put that? Yeah. So because I'm doing the Blue MBA, I get to focus on both the business side and the science side. So I also started my own company. I'm <laughs> doing a lot of stuff called Juice Robotics and we're trying to make it easier uh, for organizations to access the deep sea. And so my thesis is to both work on juice robotics and make this a fully fledged successful company and also study deep sea sharks and really bring more awareness to the deep sea in general. And that's really been a huge barrier to ocean exploration in general is the cost of these things. You know, so what we're trying to do is really democratize deep sea exploration and democratize ocean exploration in general. So specifically, what are you building though? So we are making smaller, lighter components to these deep sea robots, these deep sea ROVs, um, these deep sea drop cameras or the brevs, like I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So somebody like me, I'm not an engineer. <laughs> I have the biology background, but I want to be able to use these cool robots, these ROVs, so I can, you know, buy some components from Juice Robotics that are instead of, you know, a 10 foot tall camera, it's now a two foot tall camera. And I can take them, I can, I can wear them like the Lego pieces. So I can take a bunch of these Lego pieces, just click, click, click them all together, expect them to work, toss them over the side of the boat, you know, come back maybe 10 hours later, pick them back up, and the data is right there for me. So you're putting robots down swimming with sharks or how does that work? All of the above. That's what's so awesome about <laughs> what I get to do. <laughs> cool. So basically it's, it's deep water camera lighting systems, things that, you know, enable people to collect visual data from underwater. Like what, what would a potential client look like for you? What are they actually trying to find? So the deep sea is actually, a lot of people don't know this, but it's our largest ecosystem on the planet. And we know very, very little about it. And that's because of the cost prohibitive. It's been you know, too expensive to get down there, but also it's just very difficult <laughs> to design things to get down there. So working with scientists to make sure that they're able to do these surveys so we know what is down there because we really don't know. But also working with um, maybe government agencies, um, NGOs, and potentially also the DOD, <laughs> Department of Defense, because they have some pretty uh, big interests right now in making sure that our oceans are protected as well. In a different way. Uh, I suspect that may be potentially DOD that's probably primarily and possibly exclusively DOD. If they're if you're building stuff that's that cool, they're gonna wanna use it and go deep, which is great. But speaking <laughs> of you know technology and viewing sharks and everything like that, I wanted to talk about your show on Discovery recently. It was a mission shark mm -hmm. dome. Uh, give us a brief overview of that show. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. So uh, so it was Austin, Dr. Austin Gallagher, Andre Musgroves, and myself, and we got to go to Guadalupe Island, which is off of Mexico. And the goal there was to find some large, what we thought, or at least what we hoped would be large pregnant female white sharks, and then tag one of them, and then follow her to an area where she might be pupping. And so for me, it was really so so cool because I had never actually gotten to swim with a white shark before. Of course, I see them offshore here all the time. But, um, you know, we had an awesome time. And then Andre got to do the craziest, coolest thing ever. He got to use the actual shark dome. And Andre is an amazing uh, free diver. He can hold his breath for like three minutes. And so we created this dome that we put underwater, like a diving bell, kind of like one of those yeah. old school kind of diving bell situations where you've got a pocket of air, you know, uh, under the water. And he would go out 
to the arms, like hold his breath, go out to the arms of this thing, try and ultrasound a shark to see whether or not she was pregnant. And then when he needed to catch his breath or felt a little shaky about the situation, go back up into the diving bell, the dome, take a breath, and then go back out and try and ultrasound the next shark. It was it was incredible. That is cool. Uh, having had the experience of swimming with great whites a lot in Guadalupe, there's there's certainly a nice feeling to know that there's something to retreat to. And just having that that cage behind you or whatever it might be, um, it's mm-hmm. just nice to have something at your back. <laughs> how how did yeah. that go? Were you successful? Yes, I mean we were able to find what we thought was a pregnant white shark and tag her. So we used a pop-off archival tag, a satellite tag, and we actually had her swallow that. So we put it in the bait, hit it in some bait. We got her to take a bite and then followed her to Benitos, which is also in Mexico, in the Sea of Cortez. And then, unfortunately, we weren't able to find any pregnant white sharks while we were there, but I'm hoping that that's a reason to go back pretty soon. So um, I'm hoping to do some more work out there. What takes your interest into the deep sea and specifically with sharks like what cool sharks are down there what are we finding we've seen some in shark week but Mm -hmm. what's left to discover there's so much out there i mean i'm so lucky that i get to say that i am being able to answer questions that we didn't even know to ask like five years ago and i'm also able to make the technology to answer these questions um and so I want to go to places that have never been explored. We might be able to find new shark species, new species of other animals. Um, I love goblin sharks, frilled sharks, if you haven't heard about them. They've got these crazy teeth. I mean, I think there's the potential that people used to think that those were sea serpents when those, you know, washed up on the beach dead. They're these long, skinny, almost snake-like looking sharks. And they live, you know, where there's no light. How How do they see? How do they get around? How do they know what to eat? Um, how do they know where the food is? There's just so many cool species of shark. I mean, the smallest shark in the world, the lantern shark, he's what, just a couple inches long. And these guys can light up. There's so much down there that we don't know. And I'm just super hyped to be able to get down there and be the first people, the first person to actually have eyes on a part on a part of our planet. Yeah. You know, you're probably the perfect person to ask about this. Did you see the article in the mirror recently? Uh, usually the mirror is just, you know, when we comment <laughs> on on this show, it's usually just with tongue in cheek, like these guys are complete morons. You know, they think of the, the biggest clickbait title they can and show a picture of a shark and hope people get scared. But they actually found a, this goblin shark and they claim that it gets up to 20 feet long. I hadn't heard about them getting that long before. Is that true? I mean, yeah, I think... Typically, you're not going to find them that well. Typically, you're not going to find them at all because they live in the deep sea, yeah. right? But um, they don't typically get that long. That would be very large. I think maybe like 13, 14 feet would be a very large goblin shark. Um, but you guys have might have seen videos before of the way that they feed. I mean, they're able to protrude their jaws um, out and they have this big kind of rostrum, so like a big looking nose kind of on the top of (laughs) what you would consider their nose. And then from their mouth, which is underneath there, they just kind of shoot that mouth out really, really quickly and grab prey. If you haven't seen a video of that, you've got to go Google it right now, goblin shark feeding. It's worth a look. So your systems would be able to go down there and hopefully see them in situ, maybe study a little more about what they're doing rather than just a few minutes of their life like we've seen in some of the other videos. I know some of the videos were taken from sharks that died. I think this recent article Mm -hmm. was from one that they managed to capture, you know, actually feeding and swimming around. It was kind of cool because they're they're all pink. You know, their their skin's (laughs) kind of see-through. You can see the blood vessels and stuff. It's a weird-looking animal. What's your favorite deep, deep water shark? 
My favorite deep water shark. I mean, I love the frilled shark to be completely yeah. honest. I already mentioned it before. I think they're just like flat kind of star shaped teeth are just wild. Um, they're definitely like the thing of nightmares for sure. But I think they're cute. <laughs> <laughs> so where does your, where does your fascination lie? I mean, you're, you're touching sort of business and oceanography and, and sharks and everything else. Do you see yourself really specializing in that, that deep water environment or is it just sharks in general, anywhere that, you know, that business and education takes you? But I'm really now trying to specialize more in general in the deep sea and really deep sea technology and being able to push that, um, you know, make it smaller and making it more accessible. And so that we can then, like you said, education, take videos, mm. take data and make the deep sea a more tangible thing for the average person. So that, as we all know, if you are more educated about something, you're going to be more likely to want to conserve it. Yeah. Uh, you said something really interesting where you're seeing these animals in the deep sea in their natural environment, but you're also attracting them in. So can mm -hmm. you clear that up for people? Because, you know, some people might look at that and say, you're immediately creating an artificial scenario where you might be attracting different animals to a location that either shouldn't be mixing together or that would be in heightened competition because you've got lights on and something that's completely artificial to that environment. So how do you pass that with collecting actual valid data? Yeah, so what we use are the brubs and those are baited. So depending on where we are, we'll typically put on maybe a bonito or some pilchards or something that's really smelly to bring those sharks in. Um, but we are not the only dead thing on the seafloor, right? So uh, if a whale or a fish dies on the surface, it will also fall down to the bottom. And that's what I think a lot of these fish are eating anyway. A lot of them are scavengers. And so it's typical for them to be, you know, using their senses to be looking for dead things on the seafloor. When it comes to the lights, yeah, that's not as natural, but that's mm. one thing I'm really working on. I'm working on saying, all right, can we get, you know, infrared lights here? so that we're not affecting them as much. I do believe that some of the white light is maybe keeping some of the more wary animals further away from the bait, or maybe it'll take them longer to say, okay, it's worth me actually coming up and taking a bite of this bait. Um, yeah. And so that's why we're working on things like that for sure. So yeah. always open to ideas. <laughs> uh, remind me, uh, how far does you know natural light penetrate? Like When do we get into that deep dark zone? Yeah. So after about 200 meters, you're in the twilight zone. And so from about 200 to 1000 meters, you don't have enough light for photosynthesis. Some of these animals, they're able to, you know, have adaptations in their eyes and things that they can kind of see. But below 1000 meters, you're in the aphotic zone, there is no light at all. And I typically work between like 400 meters to 2000 meters when it comes to my work. But a lot of the technologies that we're creating, they're able to go even deeper. Now, what role does, you know, the deep ocean play in some of the more, you know, hero species that you work with and we've seen on Shark Week and stuff like, you know, great whites, makos, hammerheads. Is, is that deep ocean having any effect on them at all? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, I think that in general, one thing that I come across when I'm talking to people about the deep sea is they think it's dead or they think it doesn't really mix with the surface waters. And in a lot of places, it does not mix, right? There are certainly stratified layers in the ocean, but in areas, especially I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the term upwelling. So in areas where you have the deep water currents coming up to the surface, that's oftentimes an area of very high productivity. So a lot of animal life, a lot of fish life, um, plankton that's bringing in the fish. 
And so these areas are what's going to be attracting things like our favorite Makos, right? I love Makos. I just caught one the other day and tagged it. it was super awesome. Um, and so being able to say, you know, we need to conserve these areas because we need this life that's also um, processing all of the, you know, material, the organic material, like these sharks poop <laughs> or, mm. you know, the dead whale we were just talking about that goes down to the sea floor. That also needs to be processed so that it can then be turned back into materials that are bioavailable then for our makos and our sharks on the surface when they are able to bring, when the ocean is able to bring that um, nutrient back up to the surface. Now, if my memory serves, uh, you live off Cape Cod, I know that, um, but the, the waters off there get pretty deep pretty quickly, right? So is that also one of these upwelling areas and that's why we see a lot of sharks around there? Yeah, relatively quickly. It's not uh, you know, super close to here, at least. It's not a super quick drop-off. Mm. Um, but I don't think that's why, at least if we're talking about the white sharks, <laughs> uh, that, I don't think that's why they're here. I think they're here because of our really large seal population. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the great whites because uh, we had Scomal on uh, a little while ago and we were chatting about the great whites that were coming close. And this is, it seems to be a repeated topic for, you know, the local newspapers in the area. Uh, one just came out on August 28th where they're talking about, you know, as white shark surveillance increases, then the actual behavior of beachgoers is now being looked at. And we're trying to understand how are people thinking and feeling about this. And, the you know, the summary of this story is people are not venturing out and very deep into the water anymore, at least in anecdotal cases, because they're mm -hmm. concerned about the presence of great whites around. What's your take on that? Uh, I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I'm not bitter about it by any means. I'm pretty happy about it. Um, so like you said, I am out here on Cape Cod. So I grew up spending my summers out here. I was a summer kid who really wanted to be a local. <laughs> and so, you know, I had the privilege, like I said earlier, of you know, seeing a place that as a child, I didn't fully understand wasn't, you know, the most healthy ecosystem. But growing up, I got to see these white sharks come back. And so, you know, I get to talk to a lot of my friends and a lot of people around here who are on both ends of the spectrum. You've got the people that are like, we need to get rid of the sharks. This is a problem. Like, get rid of the seals, get rid of the sharks. You know, I'm worried about tourism. I'm worried about my business. And then you have people on the complete opposite side of the spectrum that are kind of saying the same thing, but they're like, I'm worried about my business, but you know, it's helping my business. I've built a business around mm. the sharks. Um, I love them so much. They can't ever go anywhere because, you know, I've based my livelihood around them. And then you've got most people, I think in the middle who are saying, yeah, I still go to the beach, but I don't go as deep or I try to stay to the sandbar, you know, instead, or if there's a seal in the water, I'm definitely getting out. And I think, um, Cape Cod's a really unique place where people have relatively mostly accepted that they're here. And there are a lot of really great local groups that are trying to figure out what's the healthiest and safest way for us all to coexist. So what is the, in your own personal experience, like what makes you comfortable going down to the beach? Is it, you know, crystal clear waters, you know, presence or absence of life? Like if, for somebody who's visiting your area, because I mean, Cape Cod mm -hmm. is absolutely spectacular and I'm, I'm very pleased to see that sharks making a comeback there. A big thing we talked about with Dr. Greg Scomel was that 
great whites are just actually returning to the numbers that they really need to be uh, in order to you know coexist with the seals and keep the seals in check and everything else. Yep. So this is all good news, but it's kind of relatively new history for people, especially new tourists to the area. So how yep. do you make them feel a little more comfortable with getting into the water in whatever circumstance they choose? Yeah, I mean, for anything, it's you know thinking about the risk that you're willing to take. Of course, we all know that the chance of being bit by a shark, especially a white shark, is less than being bit by another person on the New York subway. Like, <laughs> that's one of my favorite facts. But, <laughs> you know, it's thinking about, you know, maybe I won't go out early, early in the morning or around dusk. We don't have the most clear of water around here. We do have very high, we have a very highly productive waters out here. So that means that our waters has more life in it. So it's a little bit more murky in general. So if it's even more murky than normal, <laughs> maybe thinking about staying about a bit closer to the um, to the uh, shore. But I typically say to people, you know, I still go swimming out there. I think about when I'm going, if I see a seal or a bunch of seals, especially, I'm going to get out of the water. But I've also been on my boat and I've seen a white shark in eight feet of water going off after a seal 10 feet from shore. Wow. Um, but I think it's in general just realizing what you're you're willing to accept and understanding that the risks are so so low but still being responsible in what you're willing to do you know learning to coexist really is the the key here where the sharks are not going to go away the seals are not going to go away and learning to be able to say all right you know this is your time you can be here you can use it that's great you know we've we'll use it when you're done <laughs> You know, the, the relative safety, let's say in quotes of, you know, knowing when a shark's in the area is only, you know, it, it's directly proportional to how many sharks might actually be tagged around there. And despite, you know, Greg being out there tagging as much as he can and everybody else, <laughs> I, I doubt we're going to tag all the sharks. So that's, that's something I was actually, I was looking at your uh, company and what you're doing. I'm wondering, is there a possibility to set up, um, you know, cameras that, you know, in all of our backyards, we've got you know, motion sensor things that can detect whether a human's walking in your backyard and trying to swim in your pool or steal your bike or whatever might be going on. Couldn't we do something like that underwater where it detects a shark? Absolutely. I mean, I, I said I was open to ideas, but I didn't really mean it. Thank you. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> sounds like I'm going to have to give these guys a call. Um, <laughs> no, it's just it's my idea. I just thought that, you know, if we're limited in our ability to give people relative comfort in swimming in the water... Um, and that limitation is how many sharks can we tag and therefore we get a little ping when they're around. Um, we can do a lot with drones in the air, but why couldn't we do that sort of underwater as well? I know that we're very limited by, you know, how clear the water is and everything else, but it seems like one more tool that might be interesting to, to pursue. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think this is a situation of just one solution. This is going to be a situation of a suite of solutions working together to um you know monitor the beaches so why should people care about the deep ocean what what effect will it have in their life now or in the future yeah that's a great question it's like i said earlier it's really hard to want to protect something if you have no understanding about yeah. it and um the deep sea really affects all life here on the planet and that might sound like a really big <laughs> right thing to say but it, it truly does like we said earlier, you know, the, a lot of the nutrients um, and even carbon is captured in this these deep sea ecosystems, and um, it's a big carbon sink. And we have these nutrients that are down there that, 
like I said earlier, are eventually going to make it up to the surface. And that's what's going to create the life on the surface. And then that's what's going to create, you know, phytoplankton blooms, which then creates, you know, the which ability to bring in more carbon to the ocean, which then sinks back down to the deep sea. And it's really a beautiful cycle that is really important that we're able to protect it for that reason. But also, you know, we've done a pretty solid good job of damaging a lot of our commercial fishing on the surface. And one thing that we really need to consider is protecting these deep sea areas before, you know, we're able to overexploit the deep sea fisheries as well. Right. So a lot of the food I think that we'll be getting in the future will potentially be coming from deep sea fish. And we might be looking at new species on our plate. So protecting it for, our, you know, our food for ourselves, protecting it for the nutrients on the planet for, you know, making sure that we have life and our, you know, climate doesn't uh, change drastically too much more too much quickly. It's so important that we're able to get to places like this and, you know, work together um, to just explore. (laughs) I get to just, you know, (laughs) go down there and like I said earlier, be like one of the first people to see an area or to study an area, which is just wild. That's so cool. Now, you said something interesting there where we might have new species on our plates. I mean, most footage I've seen of, you know, deep water sites <laughs> have relatively unappetizing looking fish down there. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and they're all lit up and translucent. They've got weird eyes and they don't look like they'd be that good to eat. They're all kind of like jaws, no body. Is there anything down there that you've seen that looks particularly commercially viable <laughs> as a food source? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that frankly, a lot of the fish that you're eating today would be still considered deep sea fish. So remember, deep sea typically is considered below 200 meters. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily mean that it's something's going to be living on the sea floor. Sure. So, um, you know, I think it's orange roughy. That's actually a deep sea fish that a lot of people love today. Yep. Um, and then, you know, it's not just maybe fish that's going to be on our plates, but maybe fish that's going to end up in your dog's plate, in your dog's mm. food, your cat's food, or um, chicken meal, right? So stuff like that, or not chicken meal, food for chickens. Sure. Um, uh, so, you know, you've got a lot of these um, fish that are just not living on the seafloor, but living up in the water column. That would probably be a fish that you'd typically more think about eating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you say we need to protect the deep sea. What are the threats right now? Is it deep trawlers mm-hmm. or oil exploitation or, you know, runoff or, you know, things that we directly are doing to it um, that perhaps we don't normally think of? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, first thing to start with is just simply pollution. Um, you know, I've have videos from 2000 meters um, in Bermuda that I can think of specifically right now where I was looking at beer cans, right? <laughs> like you don't typically think of, you know, if you're throwing it overboard, you know, it's going to end up on the sea floor. Um, so that's obviously affecting animals all over the planet, but a lot of it is going to end up in the deep sea because of the currents, even if you're not, you know, over the deep sea, when you drop it in or it comes off the rivers into the ocean, it's going to end up down there probably one day. Um, you know, we're also really concerned right now about deep sea mining. Um, this is a massive concern in the deep sea conservation community. We don't have enough information about the biology and the abundance of things down there to know what the effects of mining down there would have yet. So we're trying to push for like moratorium. So to wait until we have that information before we really 
allow for a lot of this deep sea mining to occur. Yeah. What do you see, um, if anything, in terms of like, you know, global warming impact on deep sea environments? Is there any change or is it just too deep to be affected? I don't think that anything won't be affected, right? Mm. So everything is connected. I mean, the deep sea, though, is generally thought of as being relatively static. So you're, if you think about temperature, once you're below a certain depth, pretty much the entire ocean in general is going to be about four degrees Celsius down there. Um, so how will that, I doubt that that will be greatly affected, but we need more data. We need more information about this. We don't really, a lot of these are, you know, a lot of what I'm saying is from data that we've then extrapolated out to assume that it might be the same in another mm. area, but we haven't gotten there yet. Um, and so the technology needs to catch up, the, the money needs to be there, the interest needs to be there um, to be able to say definitively that these are what the effects are going to be. Um, wouldn't that money come from probably, you know, companies sponsoring it in order to exploit those resources in one way or another? <laughs> in one way it could, sure. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of the governments as well, they're starting to look into this as well because, you know, it's affecting humans now. Yeah. Um, you know, climate change, global warming is directly affecting humans. And, um, you know, the, if, like I said earlier, if things die that are on the surface or if we're not getting, um, you know, the certain, a different, if we're getting a different type of phytoplankton that's blooming, that's not as nutritious to the animals in the deep sea, then we're going to have some serious problems and everything's connected. You know, if the climate warms up and the ocean warms up, there's been some thoughts that the, um, <laughs> the conveyor belt of currents in the ocean might slow down. So you're going to have less of this upwelling. You're going to have, you know, less of the colder water moving around. And maybe it's just going to sit in the deep sea and not make it to the surface. So, you know, there's a lot of these models going around that are super, super important, but there's always more data we can get. Yeah. Is there any model so far that says, you know, we've talked a lot about sharks and, you know, expanding their ranges and even in Cape Cod, you know, we've seen mm -hmm. species that are going up there that don't traditionally go to that area, but it's all fairly surface-based stuff in the scope of things. Um, do you predict anything in the future where we're seeing some of these deep sea animals like coming up or perhaps, you know, species disappearing from the, the surface levels and, and retreating down to the cooler waters? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> it's hard to give you an exact, uh, you know, this species will do this. But, yeah. you know, there are definitely species where their range might, their depth range might be, like if you think of a dogfish, so off here we have spiny dogfish, let's talk about them. They can, I've seen them on videos, you know, at 20 feet, but I've also seen them on videos off here a couple hundred meters down. And so we might be seeing them, they're going to have different types of ranges of, you know, um, where they're comfortable. So maybe they like a certain temperature range, maybe they like a certain depth range. And if that temperature range, you know, is affected and it's too warm on the surface, you're right, we might see them going down deeper. Um, or we might see, you know, deeper species um, that might live in the Arctic, you know, going down to the Caribbean. And that's something that we think we might have seen a group caught uh, what we consider typically a more deep sea Arctic shark and they caught it down in Belize. So, you yeah. know, you never know what we're going to see. Do you think there's anything we can learn from these deep sea sharks other than just that they're wild and crazy looking? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, anytime that you're going into looking at something new, you don't know what you're going to find. But 
there are certainly applications for things like medicine. You know, you might find a shark that's really slow growing or um, lives longer. So how can we study what its cells are doing? Why are they, um, you know, aging slower? Things like that. Um, or, you know, how are you living under such intense pressure? And how can then we design, you know, our own technology to kind of copy what the shark is doing so that, you know, we're more successful in being down there for longer, deeper um, so there's always great things we can learn and, um, I'm always asking new questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, until we see you next on shark week, what's keeping you busy? Well, school, <laughs> school and working on my business, juice robotics. And then I also work with Dr. Austin Gallagher at beneath the waves as a researcher. So I think I've been out of the country like seven times this year so far, uh, doing all this nice. DC work, mostly in the Caribbean. And I just recently moved back up north. I used to be in Miami. So I'm really happy to be spending a lot of my winters <laughs> back in the Caribbean. Uh, so yeah, lots of travel, lots of school and, you know, just creating cool new stuff. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us on Shark Week Podcast, Christine De Silva. Look forward to all seeing right. you again. Thank you, Luke. You know, one of the things that I absolutely love about marine biology and the ocean is that there's still so much more to explore. There's so much more to discover. And a lot of what we do in Shark Week and other sort of peripheral programming is talk about some of these hero species and how it affects, you know, people and our planet and discovering where they're going and if they're interacting with people and, and a lot of that cool stuff. But we're just scratching the surface, guys. There is so much to learn about the ocean. There's so much yet to be discovered. And there's actually a lot that's happening right now that is putting a lot of that deep sea environment in peril. And I think Christine De Silva really, you know, outlined that for us, that it's not an environment that we should ignore. You know, her research is showing us beer cans on the bottom of the ocean, which is not unusual. I can see fishermen throwing stuff overboard in a, you know, completely irresponsible way, but I can see it happening. But also, we're looking at corporations going in and wanting to exploit the resources of the deep ocean. They, they already are in many cases, and we don't really know what that's doing. And that is the biggest problem. So I think as we grow with our research knowledge supporting projects that look into areas that are understudied, things like the deep sea, things like environments that aren't tourist-friendly, for example, but are just part of this massive, beautiful ecosystem that we call the ocean, really need to be supported. And as part of our support for that, we'll continue to give great ideas, like all these, you know, technology ideas that I gave Christine. Or, you know, we'll talk about who gets licenses on those later, mate. But uh, <laughs> Shark Week, the podcast, solving all your underwater tech problems, and we will continue to try to do so. But until then, I hope you enjoyed this uh, deep sea conversation because it is truly a fascinating environment. All right. That's it for today's episode. I want you to stay tuned to this feed as we continue to cover the sharkiest current topics, talk to top scientists and experts, and learn about the latest conservation efforts to keep this amazing animal from extinction. I want to thank you for listening to Shark Week, the podcast. Please be sure to rate us five stars and subscribe for more shark fun facts. Until next time, I'm Luke Tipple. I'll chat to you soon.